This week, we continue a series of interviews with participants in the Pedagogies of Care project. In this episode, we explore how we can enhance student learning by designing our classes to provide a strong sense of class community and using immediacy cues to maintain instructor presence. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. We are very pleased to welcome back our two guests today, Sarah Rose Cavanaugh and Josh Eiler. Sarah is the author of The Spark of Learning, Energizing Education with the Science of Emotion, and Hive Mind: Thinking Alike in a Divided World, and numerous scholarly publications. She is the Associate Director for Grants and Research at the DeMore Center for Teaching Excellence at Assumption College, the Co-Director of the Laboratory for Cognitive and Effective Science, and also Research Affiliate at the Emotion, Brain, and Behavior Laboratory at Tufts University. Josh is a Director of Faculty Development and a lecturer in Writing and Rhetoric at the University of Mississippi. Josh is the author of How Humans Learn, The Science and Stories Behind Effective Teaching. Welcome back, Josh and Sarah. Thank you. Thanks very much. Today's teas are, Sarah, are you drinking tea? I'm not. I'm quite thirsty because I was going to be drinking seltzer, but I left it downstairs. And I have some ice cold H2O here. Yep, yep. We know how it goes with the two of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just not cooperating. But probably half of our guests don't, so that's okay. And I'm drinking ginger peach green tea. And I have black currant today. Nice. We've invited you back today to talk about the project you created for the Pedagogies of Care project. In our three previous podcasts, we've talked to other people on the project. So we'd like to hear a little bit about what you jointly contributed to this project. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, definitely. As you know, this is part of a larger project with West Virginia University Press authors. We wanted to kind of approach this topic of pedagogy of care from the social angle. And in both of our books, we talk about sociality and the overlap between sociality and emotions. And I thought it would be a lot of fun to collaborate with Sarah. We talk about some of the same topics in different and complementary ways in both of our books. And we really wanted to bring some of that research to bear on how we create classrooms that honor students as human beings in ways that really advance the work of learning. And I would just contribute that it was a lot of fun to collaborate with Josh on this. And also that it was his idea to team up. And I might not have done it because I was feeling kind of (laughs) lazy. And so when we first started talking about the possibility of some of the authors contributing to this project, I didn't know if I would join in. But then when Josh invited me, how could I say no? And I just want to note that nothing is further from the truth than Sarah being lazy. Without giving away too much about your contribution to the project, could you tell us a little bit about what your focus is in this? Sure. I think as Josh noted, we really focused on emotions and sociality because that is kind of the touch points between our two bodies of work. 
And we really wanted to communicate in a pretty brief format, as you've probably heard from the other contributors, the intention was that these be easily digestible, short, accessible pieces that different centers for teaching excellence or educational developers could use in their own work with their own faculty. So we wanted to just briefly touch on the fact and convey the message that is really important for educators to realize and communicate in their own classrooms that they themselves are a person with their own unique style and flair, that they know that their students are people and see them as individuals, and that you tend a little bit to the community of your classroom. And so those were some of the major points that we wanted to convey in a very brief format. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely right. And it's also true that we wanted to model a little bit about what we were talking about. So we wanted to keep it light. We wanted to inject a little bit of humor. We wanted to make it more of a conversation to capitalize on ways that faculty can do that in their classrooms as well. We've talked a little bit before about how faculty don't always think about tending to that community piece as much as we need to, especially in this moment. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of adjustments that faculty might need to make to tend to that community piece a little bit more? You're right to pinpoint this moment particularly, because especially if you started out teaching face-to-face and then had to suddenly shift into an online format, that can be jarring, especially in terms of how you continue the community you developed in the face-to-face environment and how you also heighten and maximize it. And they're just different things that you need to do. One is, and we do mention this in our project, communicate with students as often as possible. Let them hear from you, let them see you through video as much as you can. And to focus on what I think really matters most about social interaction, and that's collaborating with other human beings. And there are lots of great ways to do that, even asynchronously. But you have to look for them and spend some time, I think, figuring out how to implement them effectively. And I think on my campus, we've been talking to students in a couple of the different offices on our campus, like the Student Success Office, has been polling students and interviewing students about their experiences this spring. And one of the things that we heard from a lot of our students was that they missed the -the in-the-classroom experience, not even seeing us (laughs) and learning from us, but the interactions with the other students. And that one of the things that they thought that some faculty did really well in the remote switch and some did less well was create opportunities for them to engage with each other still and to have that experience, whether it is in breakout rooms and Zoom or on the discussion boards or collaborative projects that they're working on where they still got to interact with each other and their fellow peers. One of the things that I don't think we mentioned it in our project, but social media, which is where all of the four of us have interacted, that's asynchronous social interaction. I mean, I may see a tweet from eight hours ago that I'm responding to. And so definitely ways to make it meaningful. But Sarah's saying that is so much of what the students value is talking to each other and being with each other. Wait, Josh, you don't interact with me at 5 a.m.? (laughs) (laughs) That's when I do most of my tweet interactions. (laughs) I do a lot of late tweets as well. I'm an early morning tweeter. (laughs) I follow an unusual number of people from the United Kingdom for some reason, (laughs) but I always notice this that a whole ton of my social network will be posting about going to bed and I'll be like, wait, what? (laughs) Or the day being done. It's funny how that jars our experience a little bit. I wanted to follow up on something that you started with, Josh, which was the moment of starting in person and moving to online. 
Whereas in the fall, we might have the opposite experience where we might start online and move to in-person. Can you talk a little bit about some of the strategies that faculty could consider to establish that community when it wasn't already established from that in-person engagement? A couple of things about that. I think that some of the strategies we were just talking about forging community in the online spaces early and often will be key. I also think that one key difference between now and the sudden emergency shift is that our institutions have a lot more time to be able to at least try to solve the problem of access to technology, which opens a door for more synchronous elements that we couldn't necessarily do because of equity issues. I know rural Mississippians, this is something we were thinking a lot about at my university. How do we get students the capabilities? But now we've had some time, and I think it's possible to do a little bit more synchronously, keeping it optional, hopefully, again, for equity reasons, but more ways to do that. Now, when we move to -to face-to-face, I think this is really important. It's not going to be the same face-to-face that it used to be, right? I really have been talking to a lot of people about the psychological impact of faculty walking into a classroom for the first time in a mask, seeing students in masks, and trying to manage community and the social dynamics of the classroom in a very new and emotionally fraught situation. And honestly, when I think about that setting, I turn to Sarah's book immediately because it's a good guidepost for how we might navigate that. I don't know if you all saw this, but on social media, a lot of people were talking about Purdue, I think it was. University was talking about putting up plexiglass between the professors and the students. So not only masks, but actual physical barriers, perhaps. And I think that was a very wise point that Josh made. This is going to be a new normal, as everyone keeps saying, not back to normal. One of my favorite responses to that was Robin DeRose's who suggested that it's basically making the person two-dimensional. It's like they're on a screen on this two-dimensional surface. And then she suggested, maybe there's other things we could do if that's how we're going to do it. So it was a nice suggestion. I also think that virus particles can travel over plexiglass. (laughs) It's a strange solution to me. I don't know. Not to mention it reinforces hierarchy. And so if you're trying to establish a flattened space where you have more of a community, that certainly is not going to work if one person's behind a wall and somehow everybody else doesn't deserve a wall. Right. I don't know if I want a wall, but (laughs) (laughs) thinking of odd equity issues. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that faculty are also going to have to be very intentional if we start online as online faculty probably have always been intentional about getting to know our students, about designing parts of the online community where students are recording videos or talking about their likes and dislikes. It's very easy to get to know your students in that interstitial five minutes before class and at the end of class where you just chat a little bit. And the online environment doesn't have that built in. And I think that we're going to have to build it in very intentionally. I've actually found, because the two classes that I was teaching that were not online were face-to-face, and there was a little bit of a cushion there. With one of them, it looked like we were going to go remote. And in the other one, the decision had just been announced that that was going to happen in a few days. So I asked them in both cases, and they at least claimed initially that they all had technology and good Wi-Fi connections, and they preferred remaining synchronous. So my classes continued to meet synchronously, although more activities shifted to online activities. And 
we cut down on some of the actual contact hours a little bit in both of the classes. One of the things that happened was I'd log in a few minutes early and invite students to stay after the session ended. And there were a whole lot more interactions before the class started and at the end. As long as you build in opportunities for that interaction before and after class, it can work pretty nicely. And you no longer have that podium in the way between you and the students as you might in a large lecture hall. One of the things that's common to the approaches you take in each of your books relating to teaching and learning is you focus on the importance of focusing on the human beings in the classroom and not the student per se, that students are not just recipients of knowledge. The role of emotions is really important. The connections they have are really important. Could you talk just a little bit about the importance of focusing on the people in the classroom? Yes, I think that part of that is something that we've gotten across a little bit already in our conversation is just attending to a sense of community and that human beings are so social and so motivated by our own sociality. But I think a new point I'd like to make is that we also need to think about in the classroom the idea of co-creation and something Chris Emden calls co-generating dialogues and the idea that we are all learning together and that we are all creating this learning environment and the learning that occurs in that learning environment together, both the instructor and the students, and that they are learning from each other as much as they're learning from us and we're learning from them. And so I think that they should have some say and shaping the work of the classroom and shaping the direction of the discussions that are occurring. I'm a big believer in autonomy and choice in terms of the format of some of the assignments, the structure of some of the course, the topics even. And I think that when you think about the classroom as a social setting, that brings that to the surface, that idea of co-creating the learning environment. Building off of that, we're all humans in this room. And if anyone's ever had an experience in the classroom where a student came up with a point that you'd never thought of before and you have that kind of epiphany or there's something that moves the students and you in the classroom, it's just so clear that the classroom is a vibrant human space. And I also really truly believe that teaching is one of the most human professions, that there's a real vulnerability in a student saying, I need to learn something. Will you teach me that thing? And the same is true for the person in front of the classroom to admit when we don't know something or to admit that we're wrong or to work through something that we haven't really thought completely about. And so I think that that makes the classroom such a place that's alive with activity. And so I think that, you know, our sociality is part of that, but it's one piece of this larger equation. Related to this idea, I've heard a lot of students concerned about the social experience of being in college that's beyond just the classroom and how that feeds into their classroom participation and being a member of a community and really faculty too, like those spontaneous moments where you interact with someone that you weren't planning to because you bump into them in the hallway or you see them somewhere on campus. Can you talk a little bit about some of those differences and ways that we might help not really compensate for that, but just kind of care about that those things are missing and that there's a loss of that and maybe facilitate or create new opportunities that would be different, but something that would allow for some community in a different way to form? That's a really pertinent question because I see a lot of discussion about what is the value of being all together on a college campus? What does the face-to-face experience really mean and why does it matter? And a surprising variety of (laughs) thoughts about that question. 
So I think that we really need to be thinking about opportunities for students to engage and collaborate and talk together about things other than just the courses that they're taking. We might learn lessons from the coaches on our campuses who are doing this very thing. They're bringing their teams together. Sometimes they're reviewing films. Sometimes they're just having community building events online, you know, watching a movie together. And there are ways that even a college's residential life staff could engage groups of students in doing something like that. I mean, we've seen for years faculty doing live film viewings with their students using hashtags and things like that on Twitter. I think Facebook now has a watch together feature that you can all watch and make comments. So yeah, I think there are lots of opportunities that we just need to explore a little bit. Yeah, and my campus is exploring a lot of this and not necessarily the faculty groups, but the residential life and student success groups and I know athletics and they're all trying to brainstorm what are ways that we can create those moments and they're trying to explore Zoom parties and the co-watching and town halls and everyone bring breakfast. And <laughs> It's really tricky because I think it's a lot easier to do the teaching and learning bit online and I think that we have a lot of leaders in online learning who have developed wonderful techniques and there's lots more we can explore. I think that's the harder piece at residential colleges. Lots of students are commuting and don't have a lot of those experiences, but those who are at residential colleges, that's what they're there for. And they're not used to having to be home with their parents or in these other scenarios. And they're really hungering for that face-to-face connection. And I think that we have to come up with some creative solutions, such as the ones that Josh noted, but I think it's a trickier business than the teaching and learning, actually. I agree. I think one thing that strikes me about the role that a faculty member could play in something like that is if something comes up in discussion where you could connect a student to other students that are even in other classes that you have or other faculty or other members of the bigger college community, that might be a way to help them make more of those spontaneous connections that they're not going to make in another way. It's almost they're facilitated, but we might need to be a little more on our game about trying to help people make those connections. That's great. I know I got a random email from a colleague I hadn't seen in a long time just saying like, oh, I haven't seen you in a long time. And it was really nice. It felt spontaneous, actually. <laughs> you know, like, wasn't expected. So I think if we take those moments and try those things, both with our colleagues and with students, it might help a little bit to make people feel connected, but also spark something exciting in a moment of excitement or a moment of care. I was fortunately able to see the video before it being officially released. And I really enjoyed the format, the humanity that you display, and the really nice storytelling that provides some nice sense of narrative and some nice connections. Could you perhaps share one of two of the recommendations you provide for faculty in addressing the near future of teaching? One point that I tried to get across is this concept of immediacy and immediacy cues. And this was something that I was struck by when researching the spark of learning, that there were so many different research studies. And the research studies really were on different topics. They were investigating extent of student learning. Did the students enjoy the course? Did the professor enjoy the course? Self-ratings, all these different variables. But for so many of them, the professor using or not using a 
immediacy cues was really important. And what immediacy cues are, are just simple, often nonverbal ways of communicating that you are present and in the moment. So things like eye contact, gestures, varied vocal tones. And I think a lot of these immediacy cues are easier to do face-to-face than they are online. But I think when you translate immediacy onto online environments, a lot of it, and Josh mentioned this already, is frequency of responsiveness. Just dipping into that online community a lot and responding to students, I think is a way that even though you're not in the shared space with them, you're demonstrating that you are present and that you are available to the students. One of the other things we were talking about was the nature of care itself at kind of the intersection between our social natures and emotions, and that this crisis has really revealed in ways that I don't think we've talked about very well in higher ed, how important it is to create caring learning environments. It's not easy to talk about emotion in higher ed. As soon as you broach the subject, suddenly people are like, whoa, that's not my job. I'm just the expert. And of course, that's not true. But I think that this circumstance really brought to the fore how important it is. And it's also really important to note that caring is affective labor and has been disproportionately done by women and faculty of color. And so this moment is an important moment to underscore that this is part of the work of teaching. It should be shared by every single person who steps into a classroom. And so I think that was another thing that we tried to wedge in to a lot of what we were saying. Going back to the concept of immediacy, one of the things that your video demonstrates is if we are teaching remotely or teaching online, how videos can be used to create a nice sense of instructor presence. Because watching the video, you've got a nice sense of humor there, you're making points effectively, and people are seeing you there, which provides a little bit of a connection, not necessarily the same one as in the classroom, but much more so than if it was just an email being sent to the class. And I thought that was really nice modeling of perhaps how we could do that effectively. Thank you. Thanks, John. I very rarely hear that I have a nice sense of humor, so I appreciate it. <laughs> I didn't mention the name. Supposed to be pedagogies of hair, John. <laughs> that came through for both of you, and I think it was done really well. And one thing I'd like to recommend is Karen Costa's book on 99 Tips for Creating Simple and Sustainable Videos. If you didn't, I was going to plug that book as well. I have actually two copies because I got mad at Amazon because it didn't ship me it fast enough and everyone else had their copy. And so I ordered another copy direct from the publisher, which is probably what I should have done anyway. So I have two copies on my bedstand. I have it both on Kindle and in front of me, actually. (laughs) I had to look over my computer just to get the title right. Yeah, it's a great book. It's important to have by the side of the computer at this point. And I think it's going to require a lot of learning. I just wrote an essay that I don't know if it will go anywhere (laughs) about the fact that we expect our students to be lifelong learners. And we talk a lot in committees, especially about liberal arts education, and that we want our students to be agile and think lightly on their feet and be able to respond with new learning when there are crises or technological or societal changes. And I think we instructors need to do a little bit of that right now. 
And so I am going to be exploring new technologies and digging through Karen's book. And I'm not someone who knows a lot about video or recordings or any of that, but I am going to spend a good part of my summer trying to learn new things so that I can be a more effective teacher because we're probably going to be disrupted in one way or another for a while. Now is not the best time to talk about the wonders of living through a pandemic, but it does provide a nice example of faculty modeling the process of learning, because certainly this spring, everyone had to learn some new skills. No matter how proficient they were with either online or face-to-face teaching, their courses were not designed for the sudden shift. And there were some major adjustments. And it did remind students of the fact that we're all learners in this together in ways that might not always be transparent to students. Love that. Yeah, that's true. And I think students get a lot of credit for being good sports about it and being patient with that learning process, especially with faculty who were honest and open about the fact that we were learning as we were going. I wanted to follow up a little bit on the modeling of videos, because one of the things that both of you are excellent at is telling stories. And not all faculty are as proficient or have as much experience as storytellers or even think of themselves as storytellers. But I think it's a really good way to connect people together is through story. Can you talk a little bit about advice that you could give faculty on how to use story as part of their teaching methods? Well, I guess one piece of advice is that faculty know their disciplines inside and out. And there are always stories behind the major discoveries, the major players, the true Hollywood story of the discovery of X, right? And faculty know that. And so that's not a personal anecdote, so they don't have to reveal that. And it's not content that they have to generate. It's deeply embedded in the material they're already teaching. And so I've worked with Kathy Matthews at Rice, and she's a beloved teacher and scholar there. And she was just so brilliant about teaching through story. She's a biologist. And when she taught about DNA, it was several class periods of hearing about all the stories that went into Watson and Crick and and Rosalind Franklin and all the things that led up to that. And students loved it and they learned a lot through it. So we can find the stories that we already know that's a part of the lore of our discipline and share those. I love that. I agree. And I think that one of the things that we faculty have besides knowledge of these stories is almost stories about the information that we're sharing and how it all fits together. And that's one of the big things, of course, that distinguishes novices from experts is being able to see that overall pattern. And I think that when you tell that information in stories, whether it's the big discoveries or something else, that the students can see those connections. It's more easy for them to access that web of knowledge. And I think that my upper level neuroscience class, I sometimes joke is more like a gossip column. In a lot of fields, there are these huge arguments always going on and controversies. And I really try to people those. And I'll put up people's pictures from Twitter (laughs) and describe those. And when those arguments are a little bit personalized and they have faces, I think that it's really engaging for the students to think about who they agree with more and things like that, rather than if it were just static knowledge. Also, one thing that I've been doing a lot of thinking about is the fact that we also engage in our own story. 
and almost the semester is a story and that it's important to get in there and interrupt the story a little bit. We were joking in the beginning of this interview that I'm a bit of a control freak. And I think that one of the things that I fight against in terms of my own teaching is I really like everything to follow a smooth pattern. But I think that more learning occurs when you interrupt your own story and kind of throw everything to the wind and pass things up and again, let the students help co-create the story of the semester. And so I think that's another way that I see storytelling and teaching weaving together. Yeah, I love that idea. And I completely agree. The semester has a narrative arc. Each class period has a narrative arc to it. And capitalizing on a good beginning, middle and end is a really powerful teaching strategy. And I think this is something you addressed in your book. Part of the sociality chapter is about how storytelling is one of our first teaching behaviors and something that I think we see in Sarah's work a lot too. And she was just talking a little bit about this, that we process information better when we make it into a story. And I think that that's really important way of thinking about learning. I think it's just a good idea to keep stories in the front of our minds as some faculty who maybe are used to telling stories in person shift to being online where they might write in a more sterile way, where it might be a little more cut and dry depending on their discipline, and that they might need to weave some of that personality into what they might write or share or videos or whatever they make in an online environment that might not seem so obvious. Right. In fact, they could imagine that the videos that they produce are the stories and that they can get the content and the facts through some other means. As you both know, we always wrap up by asking, what's next? Well, as I said earlier, what's next for me is a lot of learning. So I'm going to be exploring the world of online teaching. I'm working on the committee at my college to get our faculty all trained. They have a lot of varying experience with online environments. And we're going to try to have the fall semester be even better than the spring semester. And in terms of me personally and things I'm working on, I've been working on a new writing project that has a lot to do with storytelling and interruptions and also improv in the theater. You've got me intrigued. (laughs) Coincidentally, I'm on the same committee that Sarah's on, but at my university. So much fun, isn't it? It is. So we're deep in the weeds of helping prepare resources for faculty, regardless of what kind of environment they'll be in. And so in that realm, one of the things I'm really focused on is getting some programming for trauma-informed pedagogy up and running at the end of July and August. So just at the moment that people are designing their courses and thinking, how am I actually going to do this? They're also thinking about that. Personally, I'm still in the middle of writing a book on grades and grading, and so still trying to plug along with that as best as you can in a situation like this. So keeping on with that. It's nice to have projects to kind of work on a little bit at a time, given that large amounts of time seem completely impossible to me at the moment. Both of these projects sound really exciting, so I'm looking forward to hearing about those. I know we'll have you back to talk about them when they're... (laughs) We will invite you back, at least. We hope you'll come back. I don't know if you can stand this another time. It's always fun. I am curious about the improv, though. Could you tell us just a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I wrote a piece for the Chronicle years ago now on the interconnections of teaching and acting. And that's actually a big part of one of the chapters in Spark of Learning is the extent to which teaching is a performance profession. But this works a little more focused on the student perspective and the student mental health crisis and the lessons and growing that improvisational forms of learning can offer for students who might be struggling with those issues. Sounds deeply needed right now. 
sounds fascinating. And a book on grading, something that a lot of people want, especially after what's happened this spring, looking at alternatives to grades and the motivational issues associated with grading. Looking forward to both of these. This became a little bit more relevant than I thought it would be. Yeah. <laughs> Relevant's good when you're talking about writing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you as always for joining us. It's always great to hear your perspectives and think through things with both of you. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. Thank you. It's great talking to you again. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist. And Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. 